get going. You know, it's interesting um, how Alder Talk Live has kind of evolved. And one of the first things that <clears throat> I thought about when I started it was, let me talk about things that come up in my own practice. And we kind of got away from that, added a bunch of different things. And so one of the things I want to do is I want to talk about a number of things that have come up in the last week or so in my in my own practice and talk about them because I think they apply to a lot of everybody's cases. And it reminds me that when I was talking to co-counsel or defense counsel that a lot of these issues, they don't understand and understanding them will help your practice quite a bit. But I wanted to say something, I was moving some stuff around and I found something that I have kept on my desk and it got buried and I wrote it down. And I just wanted to tell you that I think that repetition is critical and people, you know, Mike, don't tell me this shit again. Ugh, I, believe me, Gina tells me that, stop talking. But at the same time, hearing it over and over and seeing it over and over is important. And I had buried this and I just wanted to read this to you that this is something that's kind of like a mantra. And I think that if you write out stuff, we got so much stuff going on in our minds that you forget about stuff like this. And so I have four things that I wrote down and it's just for me, but I'll share it with you. One, understanding and love, not anger or jealousy is happiness and a choice. Number two, greatness is a process of inches compounded together each day. Number three, surrender the outcome and value the process. You can commit to the process and the outcome will be there. And then number four, your feelings are in your control and many times are not what was intended by others. Now, I suspect that applies to every single person on this call, right? And so that's just something that I like to look at periodically that kind of takes, because I was fighting with defense counsel this week and then I read this and I was like, wait a minute, I'm in control of how I feel. And I realized that being angry at defense counsel was, was pushing me off my game. And when I went into some depots, I wasn't as, I wasn't as good, I wasn't as calm. So that's first thing. But I wanna talk about a couple of things that have come up. And then I'm gonna talk about at the end, what's coming the week after Thanksgiving. We got a special guest and it's gonna be an amazing, amazing thing. So the first thing was I had a, a lawyer call me and they said, Mike, I'm trying to negotiate a UM case with the carrier and the defense lawyer won't give me an offer even though I know that they want to. And they've asked for a white waiver. Mike, what's a white waiver? Should I sign that? Okay. And so the case is white versus Western title. And what it said was, is that a carrier's lowball offer can be used against it later in a bad faith case. And so carriers are hesitant to offer any money because it would look, if it's too low, later on, if they pay, offer more, then the first question is, well, why'd you offer so much less? And so the white case stood for the ideal that you can enter into an agreement 
where basically you waive the right to use that offer in a subsequent bad faith claim. And when you execute a white waiver, it effectively acts as a confidentiality like mediation. And the reason for it is that it would encourage first party carriers who wouldn't ordinarily want to offer money because of the fear of looking like they're lowballing to now start offering money. So the question is, and it's called a white waiver. And if you, that's the, the term of art, okay? The case site, and I can put it in here, is I'm gonna type in white. Um, it is uh, 40 Cal third um, 870. And it's a 1985 case and I put it in the chat. But here's the issue, all right? If a first party carrier will not talk to you and will not talk to you without a white waiver, that in and of itself is a bad faith act, right? If an insurance company says, we won't offer you any money or talk about numbers at all, unless it's in a confidential setting, that is something then you may not wanna sign a white waiver because that is bad faith in and of itself, right? The carrier owes a duty of good faith and fair dealing to their insured. They have to treat their insured as they would want to be treated. And if the only way they will talk to you is in a confidential status, then you, you should maybe not sign it and start jamming them. However, if a carrier has been reasonable with you and they are gonna be reasonable with you. Maybe you then wanna sign a white waiver because it will free up a lot of discussion to go back and forth. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so again, it's called a white that went on appeal and we were winning the appeal, we're gonna win the appeal. And it was against a couple of different defendants. And there was some confusion by the defendants as to how much they owed. And I thought it was appropriate to talk about Prop 51 and go over offsets a little bit as well. So, and if you all know this, hear it again. Proposition 51, Prop 51 says that any defendant that is 1% or more liable is responsible for all of the economic damages, period, paragraph. And they are responsible for whatever percentage of fault of non-economic damages. So let me go over that again. If a defendant is at fault at all, 1%, they are responsible for 100% of the economic damages. And if they, and then whatever their percentage is, is that is their responsibility for non-economic pain and suffering damages. So here's an example, a million dollar verdict, $600,000 in economic loss, past and future, $400,000 in pain and suffering, okay? 600 economic, 400 non-economic. Let's say a defendant gets hit for 20% responsibility they are on the hook for all $600,000 of economic and 20% of the $400,000. Does that make sense? 
Okay. So the judgment against a 20% defendant with a 600 economic and a 400 is $600,000 plus 20% of 400, which is what? $80,000. So a 20% hit is actually, they owe 680,000 of the million dollar verdict. And now you see if you have a 20, another defendant that's 20, another defendants that's 40, any one of those defendants has to pay your economic damages. However, now with that in mind, economic damages can only be paid once, one time, right? You can't lose income, be reimbursed and then say, okay, now pay me my lost income. You pay me my lost income. You pay me my lost income. Because Prop 51 says, Everybody has to pay it. But because non-economic damages are only your percentage, then you get your percentage from each defendant. Now apply that same logic to an offset. The same reasoning applies. So let's say you have multiple defendants and you settle with one of them for $200,000 and you go to trial and you get that million dollar verdict, okay? A lot of people say, well, okay, take 200 grand off the million, there's a $200,000 offset. And that's not true. The offset of the 200 is the same percentage of economic to non-economic damages. So if the verdict was 60% economics, then the settlement of 200 is 60% economics, right? And so 60% of the previous settlement will offset the verdict because you don't offset the non-economic damages because each defendant only has to pay their proportionate share of, of non-economic damages. I know that's a little confusing. Does that make sense to everybody? It is not previous settlements are dollar to dollar offset. It's not. It is a percentage of economic to non-economic. And because what they say is, okay, of the 200, 120 of it was economic. So now you take 120 off of the 600 economics, but everybody else has to pay their proportionate share of pain and suffering non-economic. So you only offset 120,000 off the burden. Make sense? That's Prop 51. It's actually a very, very helpful thing. And as I've said in the past, if you've got a huge damage case, and very, very, very scant liability, you may wanna take that case because if you can prove just even 1% responsibility, that defendant has to pay all of the economic damages. And I remember, and I don't know if Jennifer's on here, but Jennifer, I, if she is, she and I, we got a case about three, four years ago and it was passed on by three law firms and it was a kid who had a brain injury, but 
his uncle was driving the vehicle and they they clipped a um, 18 wheeler and they couldn't find any liability, but these firms kept turning them down and we took it. And I took the deposition of the truck driver really hard and they had a little bit of hesitation and they saw it. If I got 1% on them, they were gonna owe like $22 million and we settled it for $11 million just on a concern of a hiccup in liability. So Prop 51 is a very powerful weapon when you have big, huge damages, okay? Make sense? Any questions on those two things so far? And the, end, the question, does this include property damage? No, I don't think so. But I guess in theory, I've never had it happen in, because most of the time, when you have offsets at trial, property damage is, is not even an issue because it's already dealt with. Oh, Harrison, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brother. I was singing Gracie's, uh, uh, giving her props about her being the only one from the class and here's Harrison as well. So welcome. Anybody have any questions about that? Okay. So I got a couple other things, um, but I'm gonna mix in a few things. Um, Edward, if you're on here, will you send me the th or put in the information about the Thanksgiving event this Saturday? So we're gonna post in the, um, the chat. Uh, I don't know if I told you guys that um, in, in part, because of the work that Gina and I have been doing with the local downtown YMCA, um, I was asked to join the, the big Metro YMCA Board of Trustees. So I'm now a board member of YMCA and we're very involved in the YMCA. And a lot of people ask, like, you know, just like I did, how can I help, especially now at Thanksgiving? And so Gina and I's law firm and Alder Law are sponsoring something, a turkey giveaway and a food giveaway this Saturday at the downtown Y. We need people to help prepare the stuff and give it out. So we're going to, we just put in the information in the chat. We'd love to see you guys. It's very COVID responsible. Everybody's got masks. There's plenty of room. Uh, we brought our, uh, Gina's kids before. Your kids will love it. They will be, for, it's amazing how they react to stuff like this. I would, I would love to have anybody. There's no commitment, no financial commitment. It's just helping people that are food insecure over Thanksgiving. So it's in there. If I see y'all, I'd love to see y'all. All right. Next, I had talked about a nurse. I read something in the When in the Dark, and they referenced a nurse who was a hospice nurse and she wrote a book about the top five regrets that people who are dying have. And I may have mentioned it. And I've got it here. And it's by Bonnie, uh, Bronnie Ware, B-R-O-N-N-I-E, Ware, the top five regrets from, of the dying. And I just, I thought it'd be interesting to tell you what the table of contents says. Are you guys interested of the top five? See, I haven't read it yet. Right. Regret number one, 
I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And one thing that will help you with that is the app that I just downloaded, which is the Hallmark Christmas movie app. You can see a lot of Hallmark movies, right? I'm like a total sucker. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. Now, they talk about in these books, under that, how to deal with change and how they could have dealt with change in a way that was happier. And isn't that like a huge deal right now? And remember what I said, if you're over 30, and I think most of everybody here is, when we talk about change and how horrible change is, Look, you made it through the fall of the Soviet Union, 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis, and you're about to make it through this. And 90% of people who are asked about it later have said, I thought it was horrible at the time. And 90% said, I think I dealt with it pretty well. So understand changes and isn't it interesting that one of the five things that people on their deathbed say is how if I had approached change a different way, I would have allowed myself to be happier, right? So I catch myself. It was interesting, we were talking yesterday to somebody on the phone and the first thing he said was, man, aren't these horrible times? Aren't these times crazy and horrible for all of us? And your first instinct is to say, yeah, but understand that keeps you in a certain box, right? And I know it's hard sometimes, but refocusing on the good things, sometimes because change happens all the time, there's just as many things that you can look at that are good than there are bad. Now, that's not to discount how bad the bad is. But if you focus on how bad the bad is, you're gonna be a miserable son of a bitch, right? So, how we doing? Any comments so far? I will, um, let me type it in. The, it's called the top five regrets of the dying. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Okay, I wanna to go to the next topic. I know I'm kind of blowing through a lot of stuff and I'm ultimately gonna to get to something at the back end. Right. Gina and I met with a, a group of lawyers this week that, at night um, and we were talking <clears throat> to them, again, COVID, COVID friendly. And I heard a couple of times, Mike, I've put into practice what you're telling me. And I've got a couple cases where I did everything that you said. And I think Ray, you had also said this as well, right? I've done everything you said. I gave them all the info. I did, I noticed the depots. I made my client available for depot and IME and they still didn't offer me the money that was required. And so I got to wait for trial. 
And I just wanted to say that, look, the top of the mountain is 100% success. And even though these, these techniques work really well, it's not going to be a 100% every time they're going to give you what you want. So all of us in our practice, me included for sure, we have what? 20, 30% of our cases that no matter what you do without a trial date, it's going to sit in litigation. Malisac, that's what's happening to you right now, right? Without a trial date, it is going to sit. But that is not a reason to stop doing this. It is not a reason to pull your line out of the water. Understand if you have 10 cases, this may work on five or six, but that's five or six more than you started with. If you have 100 cases, imagine settling 50 of them. If you got 1,000 cases, imagine settling 500 of them, okay? So I just wanted to re-encourage people that just because sometimes you do everything you're supposed to do and it still doesn't fix the problem doesn't mean you should stop doing it. And I know Ray and I, we had that conversation, right? You're like, but it should work. I'm like, it works most of the time. So don't stop. Okay, guys? Next, I was talking to a couple of lawyers who actually are going to trial in Orange County. Shocker. I love it. My first trial now is Ventura in February. Mary Caruso and I are going to go. It's a preference case. Otherwise, I would have nothing in February. But they're going to trial in Orange County. It's a small case. And there is a very, very well-known defense expert against them. It's a relatively small case. And they were asking some advice on how to cross-examine this witness, this expert witness. And I wanted to go through what my thought process was that you guys can go through when you get a case like this and you're dealing with an expert, okay? Low impact case, not a tremendous amount of findings on the MRI, right? Chiropractic care. MRI and some injections okay? and a defense expert that shit cans the entire thing. So how do you deal with that? And here's what I told them. I, I looked at the, the uh, medical report, the IME report. And I said to them, to the, to the lawyers, I said, look, on a case like this, you're not gonna be able to take the doctor on on the medicine, right? If it's simply, uh, here's the, the findings and this doctor thinks it's nothing and another doctor thinks it's something, you're really not gonna be able to cross-examine the defense expert on, doctor, you don't know what you're talking about medicine-wise. And so, especially with very, very well-known defense experts, you have to attack them on collateral stuff. And, so the first thing I saw was this expert is saying, well, the chiropractor's notes say X, Y, and Z, and that's not in the report. So therefore, so on uh, well-known defense experts, you've got to go back and look at everything that that expert says, because they either lie or misrepresent quite a bit of stuff. And so if that expert says, well, the chiropractor didn't note radiating pain in his handwritten notes. You got to go back and look at those handwritten notes, because if you can find that, in fact, they do mention it, that is a pretty good source of cross-examination when you put the cross-exam 
in the correct context. And so what, here was my advice to them. Look, I sent the article with all the 12 questions. How much money do you make? Who are your three best customers? Do you do free speeches to insurance companies? All of those collateral things, right? And now let's say you find also an inconsistency in how they have taken down the medical records. Understand that a jury is seeing your case one time. You have seen your case hundreds of times. So you have to give the jury context for what you're trying to argue. So if you just cross-examined a defense expert and you, your first question is, well, doctor, you said the chiropractor said X, but it's really Y, you're lying, right? Doctor, how much money do you make? Doctor, will you answer my question, please? Doctor, do you do free speeches for insurance companies? Instead, if you put all of that in context, then when you say that, it has much, much, much more power. So here's what I'm talking about. So this is the advice I gave them to start the cross-examination. Doctor, you are a very well-known defense insurance doctor, correct? In fact, doctor, you are hired by insurance companies for decades to read records in the light most favorable to them to try to limit plaintiff's verdicts. Whether they say it or not, whether they answer it or not, it's irrelevant. And doctor, you understand as a professional witness that actually you have to be independent and not advocate for one side or the other, right? So doctor, if the jury sees that you're advocating for the defense, would you agree that they get to discount what you're saying? You're not gonna advocate for one side or the other, are you? Whatever he says is irrelevant. Now, do you see that I, you set that up? So now when you say, doctor, doctor, da-da-da, and they won't answer your question. Now, when you say, Doctor, is the reason you won't answer my question is because you're advocating for one side or the other? The jury now says, oh, there it is. When you ask, doctor, how much money do you make? And he goes, I don't remember. I'm like, you went through 15 years of medical school? You've been, whatever, and you don't even know $1 how much you make? Is the reason you're not telling this jury because you don't want them to know how much? Isn't it, aren't you being an advocate now? And you see how you've placed it into context. Doctor, you misrepresented what the chiropractor wrote in their notes. See, you said this and this. Doctor, you did that to advocate for the defense to try to make it look like the plaintiff isn't as hurt. Aren't you playing sides right now? Now, again, doesn't matter what the answer is, but do you see how now the jury has the context to say, oh, I see how that's relevant. I see what you're talking about. And then if the doctor fights with you, you can always back and say, doc, I don't know why you're fighting with me so much, right? Are you trying to advocate for the defense? It is a great way to shut that crap down.
everybody get that? And that frame and that context should apply to every witness that you think about in a trial. And just as an aside, again, with the, with the memory that a juror only has seen your case one time, they're probably not paying attention to the minutia. They don't know who Mr. Washington is versus Ms. Harris versus Dr. So-and-so versus, they don't even know the plaintiff's name or the defendant's name. So throughout a trial, I believe you have to continue to give context. You have to continue to give the dates. So when you have a witness, you frame it, right? You say, well, so witness, you were a witness to the accident at the intersection of so-and-so on January 23rd involving the plaintiff and the defendant, correct? Now the jury goes, oh, okay, now I know this is the witness. Doctor, you were the treating physician who saw the client and then ultimately operated on the plaintiff. And you're here to talk about, sorry, Santa, you're here to talk about that, correct? Now the jury sits up and goes, oh, okay, this is the treating surgeon. And you frame it because the jury needs to hear it over and over. And that's why I recommend it sometimes if you have a whiteboard or you have butcher paper, when something happens, you write it up on the board and you leave it up there. Because again, it also gives you a prop to be um, more, uh, more drama, especially when you're like crossing the doctor. You're like, doctor, how much money do you make? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? And you, you got this up here. And the jury's like, oh, this is cool, man. This is like, you know, law and order. It gives you a prop to be more ground. I remember I doing a first employment trial I ever did. It was a long time ago. I didn't know anything about it. In fact, I was about to waive the cause of action that gave us attorney's fees. And my co-counsel, who was an employment lawyer, was like, Mike, stop. I remember about halfway through the trial, the defense lawyer who was like at a big, big, huge employment firm. And I think she had tried, she and her partner had tried like two cases, right? She goes, you're so dramatic. I'm like, yeah, I'm winning this case, right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And that's the thing. Jurors want drama. They want video. They want context. They want to be spoon-fed. Any questions on that? You guys are quiet. All right. Next. I had an issue with Prop 213, okay? What is Prop 213? So many years ago, <coughs> there was a Proposition 213 that was supposed to apply only to fleeing felons if they got into an accident. You know, those, those people that the cops chase, they were up, they were upset because the cops are chasing this person, they get in an accident and then they claim that they got hurt. And so public passed Prop 213 to prevent those terrible fleeing felons from collecting. But what they didn't tell the public is it wasn't just fleeing felons that can't get pain and suffering. It was anyone who didn't have insurance as well. And nobody passed, right? So now 213 came in and it stood for the proposition that <clears throat> if a plaintiff does not have automobile insurance, they waive their claim 
to pain and suffering. And that's what Prop 213 is. But I just wanted to say what Prop 213 does not apply to. The first big one is a wrongful death case. So if a father is uninsured, gets into an accident and dies, his kids are not limited by Prop 213. Okay? Also, if someone is a passenger in a car and the driver is uninsured, the passenger is not limited by Prop 213. Make sense? This is one of those legal shows, right? We're talking law. Does anybody else? I think there's a couple other exceptions. A products liability case, I believe, has been excluded from Prop 213. Does anybody know that answer? No. Okay. That's it. So, Mike? Yeah. And I think Prop 13 doesn't apply if uh, it was uh, someone was in the commission of a felony. And I also think if they were convicted of drunk driving, you yeah. can get around 213. Oh, really? Got it. Okay. The last, the, thank you, Greg. The last legal thing, and then we'll, we'll uh, finish with talking about when in the dark, is um, I was looking at a case and uh, someone hit, who are now my clients, pedestrians, they were pedestrians. And the person who hit them had a limited policy. I want you to know that if your clients have UIM coverage, uninsured motorist or underinsured motorist coverage, even if they're a pedestrian, if they're hit by a vehicle, their UIM will kick in. Okay, your clients on a bicycle, if they're hit by a car, their UIM will apply. Okay, for uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage to apply does not mean that your client, the plaintiff, has to be in a car. It just means a car has to be involved. Okay, does that make sense? Hey, Mike. Yeah. Um, we're actually dealing with an issue with the UIM for commercial policy. So it's a little bit different on that case, which I'm learning about now, which is Tell something us. that everyone should look out for. Tell us. I, from my understanding, it doesn't follow you like it would with a personal auto. Unless <laughs> you can categorize the vehicle that they're in potentially as a temporary substitute auto. So there's like weird exceptions. I've never, I, I, and maybe that's not a straightforward accident. That maybe is something where there's an issue of permissive use or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different in the sense that for personal, like you were mentioning, it, it follows you, right? If you're in someone else's car, if you get hit by a car while walking across the street, right? Yeah. But my client, they only had a commercial policy for both of their personal vehicles. So it was a little bit different. And they have UIM on UM and UIM on the commercial policy, but it doesn't follow them the same way it would as a personal. I don't know about that. It's interesting. I'm just, yeah. You know what? I'm happy to talk to you about that off the, out of this and see if I can help you figure out how to get it covered. Sure. All right. Last thing. 
you'll never have a client who has UIM that is higher than their liability coverage. So if you're waiting to see what the UIM coverage is and your client has a 1530 policy, you're never gonna have more than a 15 UIM, okay? And remember, there's no umbrellas unless the underlying coverage is at least 250. So if you see a policy with 100, there's not going to be an umbrella policy because they can't write it because there'd be a $150,000 gap. And that's again, when you do these searches for insurance, they're 85% or so accurate. And if it finds 250 or more, then you have to say, well, maybe there's an umbrella out there, but if it finds 15 or 50 or 100, then very likely there's not gonna be an, an umbrella coverage. The UIM may or may not attach to the umbrella depending on what the plaintiff has purchased. Now, what's interesting is the carriers don't make any money on UIM coverage, right? So, in, so they don't push it and they don't tell our insurer, our clients that you can up your UIM coverage. <clears throat> the only way that it's not applicable on a policy, a plaintiff has to sign a document that says, I decline UIM coverage, but it is extraordinarily cheap. And for all of our own personal reasons, take a look at your insurance policy and pay the 20 bucks a year to raise your UIM to the level of your uh, liability coverage, okay? I have an a million dollar uh, policy and then a $10 million umbrella, about to be 20, that goes over my cars, properties, rental, everything. Okay? And to make that UM be $11 million as well, I think was like 300 bucks. So it is nothing. I would strongly recommend that you guys, one, get an umbrella policy because a million dollar umbrella on top of your underlying is literally a couple hundred dollars a year. You should do it. And then you should pay to make it also apply to your UM under UIM coverage. It is like, do it, right? Do it. It's very important. Anything else on that? Okay, last thing. So um, no uh, Alder talk next week, but the following week, first week in December, we are going to have Lucas Jaden. So we have talked about um, Chop Wood Carry Water. Josh Medcalf had written that book he had written a couple before, but really Chop Wood Carry Water, which I think I may have sent to everybody here, was kind of like the big deal. Like it was like a very well-known international, well, best-selling book. And if you've read it, it goes, it tells a story and it's chapter by chapter. And each chapter has kind of some of the stuff that I've written down here. Some of the things that we've always talked about, like, you know, pay attention to your own house. It was a book on falling in love with the process of becoming great. And that greatness is not about one hit wonders, not about big events, not about volcanic eruptions, not about one hit wonders. It's about ordinary, many times ordinary, but consistent behavior over time, over time. 
Now, that was such a, a popular book that Josh Medcalf wrote a second book after that called Pound the Stone, which I've sent to a lot of you guys. And it was another story line and it told chapter by chapter kind of many of the same things, right? Lucas Jaden was in, is, I think was an employee or a co-owner with Josh of the company because in addition to the books, they do life coaching. They do, they do a lot of high-end sports teams. I think they've worked with, the, Lucas told me he was just working with the Dodgers, a lot of sports psychology. And so they wrote When in the Dark, which I've read a couple of times. And it's a, a story now written with Josh and Lucas. And it's based in, in large part on Lucas's family history. And it's a very engaging story. And again, chapter to chapter, they tell life lessons. Well, I, in my post, have posted about Chopwood, Kerry Water, and Josh. Josh said, hey, you ought to talk to Lucas. Lucas and I have been talking, and he's going to be our guest the week after Thanksgiving on Friday, the first week in December. He's a wonderful guy. He will take questions. He will talk about a lot of the stuff that's in here. This is just a phenomenally good book. Um, and again, you guys have heard a lot of this stuff, right? Not nearly as well as you're going to hear it first week of December, but hearing it in a different way. I remember my, both my parents were teachers and they talked about how you taught, they taught kids. And they said, well, some kids like to hear it. Some kids have to read it. Some people have to say it. Some kids have to act it out. And what we do is we try to make our kids do all of the above because at least one of them is going to catch their attention. And that's the same thing here. We talk about it, we read it, we teach it. And at some point it's, it sinks in. So I'm really looking forward to having Lucas and spread the word. And um, that's it for this Friday. I got to go check on my bird. I got my turkey number two in the green egg. I upped the temperature, but let's see. I haven't, man, if you guys kept me from my bird and it's dead now. So last time I didn't have the temperature enough. I was at risk of giving my entire family whatever uh, trigonosis or whatever it was. So I made soup into it, cooked it really well, and then nobody ate the soup. So let's try number two today. Anything else? Okay, Nima, let's talk about it later, all right? Sure, thank you. Guys, thank y'all. Um, Santa, thank you very much. And if you guys are not Santa fans, okay, but he's here. Um, and uh, have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. And hopefully I'll see y'all in uh, on Saturday. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. See you later. Bye.